spiritual director, uh, I've been reading Blaise Pascal's Pensees. And the Pensees is a book uh, of somewhat organized thoughts written by Pascal over his rather short lifetime. Pascal lived in the 1600s, uh, was a theologian and a scientist in a time when they were often one and the same thing. Uh, and he was at the kind of the beginning of the Enlightenment, uh, which took hold in Europe as a product of the Reformation. So the Reformation happens in the mid 1500s, and Pascal was early 1600s. He died really young, even for that time, but left a legacy in science and math and theology that lasts to this day. For example, Modern hydraulics, something that certainly interests Delvin, um, but sometimes the hydraulics works in its crane and sometimes it doesn't. Did it work this week? Thank the Lord. There you go. Uh, because are based on the uh, Pascal was the first one to understand what happens with uncompressible fluids, on which the idea of hydraulics is based. We call that Pascal's law. So engineers probably know what I'm talking about. Um, theologically. Maybe you've heard of Pascal's Wager. Anybody ever heard of that? Theologically, Pascal's Wager? It is the idea, he basically said, that all things being equal, it is better to believe in Christ and then find out at the end of your life when you die you were wrong, than to not believe and find out that the Bible was right all along. In other words, there is no downside in believing in Jesus. There's no downside in following Jesus. At the very worst, you might be food for worms and live a good life. That was his, one of his thoughts. Well, in the Pensees, there's something I was reading the other day that, and you sort of read it, it's, it's divided into just these like pithy paragraphs. It's, it's sort of like somebody just transcribed all of his like notes in his journal and then numbered them. And so you only read a, kind of a few a day. So I kind of read a few a day after I've had my devotions. And, um, there was something I read that explains our nature and struggling with sin just so incredibly well. This is from Pensees number 148. Pascal writes, all men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. <laughs> However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive of every act of every man. Yet for many years, no one without faith has ever reached the goal at which everyone is continually aiming. All men complain. Princes, subjects, nobles, commoners, old, young, strong, weak, learned, ignorant, healthy, sick, in every country, at every time, of all ages and all conditions. And now that they have the internet, they complain twice as much. <laughs> the test, which has gone on so long without pause or change, really ought to convince us that we are incapable of attaining the good by our own efforts. So while the present never satisfies us, experience deceives us, and then leads us on from one misfortune to another until death comes. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is an empty print or trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. 
Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. Now, if that doesn't describe the human experience under sin, I don't know what does. Everybody complains, everybody's striving, everybody's searching for happiness, and they can't find it because they're looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> I won't sing it, I promise. Thank you. short time. 
this isn't in the notes or anything. This is just this is just me ranting. <laughs> and they're like, well, well, this is the, what about this? And then they get all they get all upset about the things the Bible doesn't tell us. Listen, in the scriptures, God has told us what we need to know. He didn't tell us everything, okay? Because you know, it'd be too big to look it around. He didn't tell you everything. He didn't tell any of us anything, everything. He told us what we need to know, okay? Some, if it's not there, it's because God didn't think we needed to worry about that too much. What scares me is the fact that we got so many people that they're spending so much time worrying about what's not there, they're not dealing with what is there. Well, let's deal with what is there, okay? I would love, there's so many things about the creation story I want to know. I will probably spend years in, in eternity just figuring them out, right? I'm hoping there's a really, really sweet, like, I don't know, like a Netflix kind of thing that I can just let it go and be like, okay, day two of creation. Let's watch this, right? I mean, something like that. Or maybe time travel will be possible and I can just, like, go back and just see it or something. I don't know, right? Like, why your minds want to know? But for now, i got to worry about what God has told me. And he tells me it was very good, right? And then the serpent comes along and he misleads them and they disobey the one command that God gave them, which was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And bam, sin enters the picture. And we saw last week, or two weeks ago, Joe preached last week, next Joe, what I call the core of sin. And that sin has, all, all sin has three main expressions at its core. The first one is disobedience. At its essence, all sin is us not thinking, speaking, or doing in line with God or his character or his instructions. We are created with a purpose and with meaning, and then sin comes along and gets us to go against that purpose and meaning. As creator, God knows what's best for us and how we should live. And when we sin, in some way we are not aligning with what is God's best, and disorder is created. When we disobey God, we create offense to his holiness, and we put ourselves in a position then to what? Experience guilt and shame and cause pain to ourselves and others. The second thing at the core of sin is self-justification. Sin causes us to constantly, constantly look to everybody else except ourselves as the cause of all our problems. Instead of ownership, we seek to justify ourselves. Instead of confession, we go for cover-up. We saw this right in how Adam and Eve, you know, Adam, God comes to Adam and says, what have you done? And God, Adam goes, the woman, you that you gave me, you gave her to me, that woman, she did it. And Eve's like, serpent did it. And of course, the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on.
of what we experience in life can be directly tied to the sin that entered the world at the fall. Even if somebody didn't have the Bible, they could easily discern that all of us from birth are hardwired to sin. Nobody teaches a child to lie or be selfish. Our natural first instinct when someone questions us is to deflect or to justify or to somehow try to protect ourselves. We easily think of ourselves first and others second, if at all. And these core elements of disobedience, self-justification, and selfishness have far-reaching effects. In fact, their extent goes to every possible relationship that we can have, which just shows us how drastic the extent of sin is and why it dominates our existence in this world. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning, is the extent of sin. When Adam leaves sin, those consequences are far-reaching for every relationship we have. Remember, the universe is created about relationships. And we see this in God's words to them and his actions as he explains to them the consequences of what they've done, which is what the rest of Genesis 3 tells us. <clears throat> and the first relationship that is completely changed is their relationship with God. Not only do they now run away from God, right, who at one time walked with them in the garden, but God must send them out of his presence and allow death to enter in. Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Let me just stop right there. Who's he talking to? One of us. So let's you just ponder that. I have an idea. I just want you to go home. Say, I want you to lay awake at 10 o'clock at night in bed and think to yourself, what? In verse 22 of Genesis 3, who's the us? Is the us the Trinity? Is the us something else? You know, I just want you to take a look at that. I'm not going to answer that. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So the garden, <coughs> yeah, the garden, the paradise does not just represent a really sweet place to live. It is symbolic of being in God's presence and dwelling with him eternally in peace. Had they been able to eat from the tree of life, they would have lived eternally, but lived eternally in conflict with God. Now I want you to stick that on the back of your mind because that's going to come back when we talk about redemption and restoration. Because remember, God's going to restore everything as it was. Being sent out from the garden means they were sent away from the immediate presence and dwelling of God. I mean, in the end, we're all everything's restored, right? One of the great promises in the book of Revelation is that we shall dwell with him forever. He shall be our God and we shall be his people. One of our purposes was to be God's companions forever, and that's ruined in the fall. Now we live and face physical death and spiritual estrangement because of sin. Had we not chosen to know good and evil, we could have remained innocent of sin and thus in perfect fellowship with God and all the other possible relationships that we have. <clears throat> but now, knowing good and evil, guess what? We will choose evil regularly, thus breaking that perfect fellowship with the holy God of the universe. And in fact, often opposing him. 
That's the first relationship that's damaged. Second one is our relationship with ourselves. Reminds me of the joke, you know, I talk to myself a lot, but at least I can have an intelligent conversation. Is that with ourselves? Remember how Adam and Eve, before God even shows up on the scene, right? They realize they're naked and ashamed. They acquired an understanding of their own guilt and shame for what they had done. God didn't even have to tell them that; it just it happened. As soon as they knew good and evil, they were like, "Oh, we're, we're naked." It's not good. We all know this feeling, which is the result of what we said. We know what it is to. Feel shame and to feel guilt. The problem is, we don't want to admit how we really are, and then adjust accordingly. We use all sorts of self-justification to keep from admitting our sin, or, or we just—we don't even have sins anymore. We just have problems, right? You never talk, nobody ever talks about somebody. That says, you know, it's just a, you got a problem. Maybe you need some counseling. Maybe, or maybe you just stop sinning. I know that sounds harsh, but you know, sometimes, sometimes the problem is we're the problem. Right? We're the problem. We just need to stop. We have all sorts of self-justification. And then guess what happens? Our sin eats away with us, at us and causes us to further act out in sinful ways. Instead of admitting the lie, we lie more to cover the lie, and then we got more lies, and we feel bad about the lies, but we can't keep track of the lies, and so we don't even know what we all lie about. When David sinned, he describes to us the internal conflict that sin brings to us. Psalm 38, this is David describing his own internal conflict with sin. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about the morning. Right? He knows a man, he sinned, he messed up. And he feels it in his very bones. And even people who've never read a page of the Bible in every culture, understand guilt and shame. This is because sin is an inherent desecration of our internal well-being. That's why when we say confession is good for the soul, that's deeply true, because it sets us on the path to restoration of our relationship with ourselves as well as God and others. So sin breaks our relationship with God, breaks our internal relationship with ourselves, and then, of course, it destroys relationships with other people. Sin extends to the massive damage done to the relationship between people, and especially the marriage relationship. Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, one thing you need to understand when we read Genesis 3 is that not every part of the curse is something God commands. Much of it is just him describing the natural consequences of sin entering the creation. But for the woman, 
By his decree, he multiplies the pain of childbirth. And a lot of women read that, and they are probably really not happy to be even that way. I don't know, because I, mean, I was there for the birth of my three children, but the worst pain I felt was I was hungry with the third one, so I ordered up a chicken sandwich. Because <laughs> I didn't think both of us should suffer, I thought only one of us should suffer, so I had a chicken sandwich. Just saying. My wife wasn't allowed to eat. I don't think she appreciated the chicken sandwich nearly as much as I appreciated the chicken sandwich. You know, a lot of you guys have probably been in there, you know, when your kids were born. It's amazing and everything. Clearly, God knew what he was doing when women are the ones that had the kids. Because I'm a dude, okay, and if something hurts once, I don't go do it again. So if dudes would have been the ones to have the kids, I'm pretty sure, right, the first child would have been born and Adam would have said, oh, I'm out. <laughs> Done. <laughs> but anyway, when I was studying for the sermon this week, I, I got to really thinking about this. Why this punishment? That's never been answered. And so I read a lot of commentaries. And you know what? They didn't have any good answers either. <laughs> so, the best explanation that I have seen, that I have seen in any of the commentaries I read, was that this is the one punishment of all the punishments that strikes at the great uniqueness of women. Because women can, and I mean in general, I realize not every woman is able to bear children. But women can bear children. Men cannot. I mean, despite what the modern liberal movement is saying. Women can bear children. Um, most women, maybe not all, but most, not all, necessarily, want children. So they will desire children, and now it will come at the cost of pain. Because of sin. But another cost that's clearly there is now there's going to be conflict between the man and the woman. They're no longer going to be in harmony. But she's going to be contrary to him. And he, in response, is going to try and rule over her. And of course, we know it goes the other way too, right? He's going to be contrary to her sometimes. And she will try and rule over him. There's going to be marital conflict. There's now disorder in the marriage relationship. It was created with order and harmony. And now it has disorder. And in fact, we know that extends to all relationships. Every relationship has struggle, but especially the marriage relationship. It's because of sin. It's because of selfishness, right? Because we want what we want. The wife wants what she wants. The husband wants what he wants. And if the wants aren't in line, aren't in line there's conflict. Not just husbands and wives, people in general, right? Because people were created not only to be in harmony with God, but with one another. And now, every relationship is a struggle at times. There's no perfect marriages. There's no perfect friendships. No perfect work relationships. There's good ones, and some are better than others. Some are probably truly great. But none are perfect. In fact, we know that within one chapter, because most 
the relational conflict becomes so great, the first murder takes place. One human kills another human in a relational conflict. And it just gets worse, right? And war, slavery, and hate, racism, sexism, all, all those things, they're all the result of sin corrupting relationships and creating disorder where God created order. So that's the third relationship that's damaged. And finally, sin actually corrupts the relationship between people and our physical environment. The actual creation relationship is damaged. Chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice God doesn't say he's cursed the ground. It's cursed as a consequence of sin and pain because of Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now remember I pointed out back in the creation section that work was part of the good of creation, right? Because when God puts it in the garden, he doesn't tend the, you know. But it was good work. It was purposeful. It was meaningful. It wasn't frustrating. It wasn't futile like so often our work feels like. We were created to have purpose and meaning in doing meaningful things. Now, drudgery, but absolutely necessary for survival. Think about your work. Think about the people you work with. This, these two go hand in hand, right? Because relationships are damaged, so they're a struggle. And work is damaged, so it's a struggle. And you got to work with other people. So now it's really a struggle. Man. But see, it's not just that work is not hard, although that's part of it. The actual creation itself is working against us. Maybe sometimes you've watched the news or you've looked around and thought, you know, it just seems like sometimes the world is trying to kill us. That's actually true. Romans chapter 8, 20 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul seems to indicate that God somehow had some active role in the consequence of sin affecting the creation. It doesn't define exactly how that works. But he for sure has allowed the consequences of sin to wreak disorder in the creation. So remember, he originally brought order to from the darkness that was at the beginning. So not only is work much harder, but now you've got earthquakes. And you've got hurricanes. You got all that other stuff that's trying to take us out. Other types of things we define as what we call natural evil. Now we have it where we go a month with no rain and then get six inches in one night. This is not healthy. We needed that six inches spread out over a month. It doesn't work that way anymore. Right? Because the environment is messed up. Breakdown is every part of the creation, and it's not going to be resolved until Jesus himself, the original creator, restores the creation to its former glory. 
fact, if you've read in the end times, it's, it's actually going to get worse. Talk about creation trying to kill you. Read about what happens in the end times. It's really going to try to kill you. So sin has affected everyone and everything in every possible way. And it is the explanation for why in so many ways the world is falling apart. It doesn't just seem like it's falling apart. The world is falling apart. That's part of the curse. That's part of the fall. You're not wrong when you look around and go, man, things are tough out there. Yes, they are. The world and everyone in it, in a lot of ways, is literally a wreck. Unfortunately, that's not the final answer. Because there's a promise that's made in the midst of this mess. That is the beginning of hope, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That last part is really important. We often call that the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's the first failed promise of a Redeemer. Right? There will be conflict. But the woman's going to have an offspring, and the serpent, Satan, Will Bruce is healed, but he will crush the serpent's head. That word bruise can be crushed too. And if you're going to crush some part of me, I'd rather you try to crush my heel than my head. It looks bad when you're in Genesis 3. Or even Genesis 4. But God isn't done yet. You're still in the beginning of the story. Well, Pascal understood that too. So lest we think Pascal leaves the matter at the consequences of sin in our lives, let me tell you how Penseus, number 148, finishes. He says, God alone is man's true good, and since man abandoned him, it is a strange fact that nothing in nature has been found to take its place. Stars and sky, earth, elements, plants, cabbages, leeks, animals, insects, cows, serpents, fever, plague, war, famine, vice, or adultery. Nothing takes God's place. It's God alone. He's our true good. And God alone is the solution to our choice to sin. He will do in Christ the work of redemption that is necessary to undo the damage of the fall and bring an eventual restoration of all things, which both the creation and we groan for as we go through this corrupted life. Let's pray. Father, when we read your word, we think about the sin that came in, we think about the consequences, we live the consequences every day. We see the consequences on the news, wars, and earthquakes, and tsunamis, and volcanoes, and 
forest fires do no good. Murders, hate. But you see, that's not the final, it's not the final story, it's not the final word. Because the present statement is not correct. Because there is a redeemer. There is one who has crushed head and serpent, even as he was bruised for our transgressions. When he died, he rose again. Who restores all those poor relationships? And who eventually restore all things to be as they were, as they were meant to be. So until that day, help us to. Stay close to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher.